I'm in Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 36. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together, and they were bewildered, because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. And they were amazed and astonished, saying, Are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in his own native language? Parthenians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they are filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk, as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will show wonders in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness, and the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day." And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst. As you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence." Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we all are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. 
Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. You may be seated. Good morning. We joked uh, in the uh, first service that after that text, it's a long one and a good one, I could probably just get up here and pray and close us out. But I'm sorry, I'm not going to do that. Um, it is, it is, a, it's a text that, that is that good, and I want to get into that in, in just a second. But before I do, I want to let you know of something. First of all, my name is Drew Moss, and I work with The Table, which is connected to our college ministry here at Sunnybrook and, uh, and I have the privilege of getting to share with you from the Word of God this morning. I'm excited to jump into that, but first, I want to let you know about something that's coming up here at Sunnybrook, something that we're really excited about, the leadership here is, is really looking forward to, and that is an event that we're going to have on September 23rd, so a Sunday, a couple weeks from now. September 23rd, we're going to have a, a baptism event here at the church. And it's actually going to take place out in this uh, lawn area on the western side. And I know what you're thinking. There's, there's no pool out there. There's no lake out there. But trust me, it's going to be cool and it's going to be a little bit redneck. But we're going to pull it off. And, uh, and we're going we're gonna to set up something out there. And, and a number of people actually from our congregation are going to be baptized on that day. And, and what we want to share this with you for two reasons. One is we want you to be there. We want, you, uh, we want to invite you to come and be a part of this celebratory event as we come together and celebrate um, some of the things that God is doing in our church. Um, but also want to let you know this, that this is an event where we're not just baptizing people who, have, um, who are just now hearing about Jesus or young children. There are people who have grown up in the church all their lives but have never actually made that decision to identify with Jesus publicly through baptism. Uh, who've never followed through on that pattern that has been set forth by Jesus and, and in through the book of Acts. And, and so they, they're choosing to do this. And if, if that's you, then, then we don't want to just invite you to come. We want to invite you to come talk with us uh, about that and, and whether that's something you might be interested in doing. So September 23rd, mark your calendars, and, and we're looking forward to seeing you guys out there, having you on that day. So our text there are, if you read through the book of Luke and Acts, if you read through those books as two parts of one story, which you should, by the way, I believe that's the way that Luke intended us to read this text, or, or, or through his gospel and through Acts. If, if you read them as two parts of one story, you will find that there are several key points in this story, several key texts that act as hinge points within the whole story. These, these little Post these little chapters or these verses upon which the rest of the narrative swings and the, the next chapter of the story unfolds. Luke 4, the end of it, Luke 4.31 specifically is one of those little hinge posts on which it swings. Luke 4.31 is where Jesus, coming out of his baptism and out of the wilderness, launches his ministry by going into Capernaum and beginning to speak. Luke 9 is, is another big one that a lot of scholars point to, and, and Ryan Vincent, when he preached a couple weeks ago, referenced this, Luke 9.51, where Luke says that Jesus resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem, and from that point on, the story is about a Jesus whose mission is to go to Jerusalem so he may die. That's a, that's a hinge point. The rest of the story is unfolding towards that. Luke 24 is a huge hinge post, not just for Luke's story, but for history. That's the resurrection. And that one, like I said, all of history swings on that moment right there. 
But another big one is our text today. And it's not quite as big as the resurrection, but like the resurrection, it's not just a hinge point for the story that Luke is telling. It is a hinge point for history itself. A gigantic moment. Acts 2 is the birth of the church. Maybe bigger than that, Acts 2 is the moment where Jesus hands off the baton of his mission and his ministry that he's been all about, hands that off to the church, puts that in the hands of everyday human beings like Peter and Andrew and John, and says, go. Go run with it. It happens in the text we just read. I want to go through that passage with you a little bit today. We're not going to walk all the way through it because we've already read it, but I just want to describe to you, it unfolds in two different halves or two different sections. The first section is the event. In other words, what happened. And then the second part is the explanation of that event. So what did it mean? And that's the pattern that I want us to follow today, that structure. What happened? I want to talk about that briefly. And then uh, what did it mean as, as Peter stands up and explains, let me tell you what this is, so we'll see it through Peter's eyes and words. And then the last that I want to add on to it is what does it mean for us? So the first question, what happened? Like I said, we'll do it briefly because you've already read through it, but there are at least five things that Luke points out takes place on this day. The first is this. The believers were all together. I take that to be all 120 of them. The believers were all together on the day of Pentecost. Now, Pentecost was a big feast for the Jewish people. It was a feast that had been instituted all the way back in the Old Testament. God had given this uh, in the time of the Exodus as he had sent the people out and was giving them the law. It was a feast that was meant to celebrate the new wheat harvest every year. A time to celebrate the fact that God had provided for them. Once again, a time of gratitude. Um, and, and it took place 50 days after the Passover. Uh, seven weeks, 50 days after the Passover, which means it's been 50 days now since Jesus has been crucified and resurrected. And then Luke says in the opening chapter of Acts 1 that he then, after he rose again, he proclaimed, he, he taught the disciples for 40 days before ascending. So it's now been 10 days since Jesus has ascended to heaven, and he's told them that they're supposed to wait in Jerusalem for something. And so that's what they've been doing for 10 days, waiting together for what, God, or what Jesus had promised to them. Another key thing you need to know about the day of Pentecost is that it was a pilgrimage festival. It was one of three that the Jews had, which means it's a time when all the Jewish men, at least, and oftentimes the women and children, but at least the men, all the Jewish men living all over the world, all came back to Jerusalem for this, for this day to celebrate this festival. And that becomes really important for the story as it unfolds. The second thing Luke tells us is that as they're together, they hear this sound of a violent rushing wind, and then they see what appears to be tongues of fire floating above each member's head in that room. And that becomes, I believe, significant because there are a number of places in the Old Testament where fire represents the presence of God. Moses is walking along the mountain with his sheep trying to take care of them and look after them and watch them and then all of a sudden he sees this bush burning over on the side there but it's not burning up and as he approaches the voice or approaches the bush he hears a voice say uh, remove your sandals for the place that you're standing is holy ground the presence of God is here 
or the Israelites, when they come to Mount Sinai for the giving of the law, it says in there that there was this violent sound all around the mountain, sound familiar, and then fire descends on the mountain, it says, as the presence of Yahweh descended on the mountain. And so everybody stands back and people are covering their ears and they're terrified and afraid because they know God is there. Right where that fire is, God is here. Or, or when they build the tabernacle and they set it up and God's presence comes into it. And every time they, they move camp and they set it up, a, a pillar of cloud or a fire at night rests over the top of the tabernacle. And that's how they all know God is here. And now, here these 120 people are sitting in this room. And for the very first time in history, they're looking at another human being across from them and going, God is here. The presence of God is, is not just dwelling on a mountain now, or not just dwelling in a tabernacle or in some miraculous bush. It's in human beings. This is a huge moment. This is a game changer. And the reason that they can say that is because of the third thing Luke describes. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit. This is what Jesus promised them. This is what he told them to wait for in Acts 1.8. Wait in Jerusalem until you are clothed with power from the Holy Spirit. And then you will be my witnesses in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. The fourth thing, it says, they all spoke in tongues and began to spill out into the city streets speaking in these tongues. Now, this is one of those areas where there's been a ton of discussion over what is actually taking place here. The word tongue there, it's in the Greek glossa, and it literally just means language. They spoke in other languages. Now, the debate is, do, do they mean human languages or do they mean like heavenly or angelic languages? Uh, what, from what the text is about to tell us, it, I lean towards human languages. But the, the most important, the key point is that uh, regardless of what kind it is, it's miraculous because they're speaking in languages that they have not learned, speaking in languages that they do not know. And so something supernatural is happening in this moment. And they begin to spill out into the street. And that leads to the next thing, which is the crowds come running at the commotion of this when they hear this. And when they arrive, they hear each and every one of these believers speaking in languages that they can all understand, speaking in their own native languages. Remember, it's Pentecost, and so you have Jews from all over the world there at this point. And they're recognizing, not in Greek, the common tongue of the day, not in Aramaic, the language of the Palestine area, but in their own individual languages from all over. Now, this is um, pretty amazing. And, and Luke goes through the list of Parthians and, and Judeans and from Cappadocia and from um, Phrygia and all these things. And, and actually, what, what you'll notice if you look at a map and read through that list is uh, that Luke is walking from east to west through the Roman Empire. He's just marching you all the way across. It's his way of just saying, everybody's there. The whole world has come to this place, to this moment, for this time right here. And this is shocking when they hear these people speaking because the Galileans were known for, they say, they swallowed their syllables when they talked. Now, I'll be honest, I don't really know what that means. All I know is that it made you sound like a hick. Okay, that's what they say. The Galileans were known for being kind of like uncultured, backwoods, rednecks. These people can't even speak their own language correctly, all right? And now they're speaking my language fluently. What is going on here? And it leads to this question that we read in verse 12. 
And all are amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? And so Peter takes the opportunity to get up and explain. And now we move to that second question. What did it mean? What are these tongues of fire and wind and languages? What does this mean? Peter will stand up to explain to them. Some of them thought that they were drunk, that they had been drinking too much. And Peter says, no, 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 it's only nine in the morning. Who gets drunk at nine in the morning? He says, let me tell you what this really is. In verse 16 of chapter 2, it says this. This is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male servants and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. Peter says that this, first of all, his first thing, this is the beginning of a new era. This is a brand new day. You see, he quotes from Joel 2, which says that one day, in the last days, God was going to do amazing things, and he was going to display his power through everyday people. And what Peter says is he quotes Joel 2, and he goes, you're looking at it. Right now, you are witnessing history. Right now, you are seeing the game changer, the the beginning of a brand new era where what Joel talked about so long ago, it's happening. The second thing that Peter says is that this is the result of Jesus' resurrection. He begins to proclaim to them the the works of Jesus. You are all familiar with the, the works that Jesus did, the signs and the wonders that he did, and the fact that he was crucified, and they were familiar, even even those who were from out of town, because see, one of the other pilgrimage festivals that the Jews followed was Passover, which means this same crowd of people was in this same town just 50 days ago when Jesus was crucified. And so they all know, in fact, Peter even kind of pins the blame on them. He says, you, with the help of wicked men, had him put to death. But then he goes, but he didn't stay dead. And this is what he says in verse 32. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. See, It was believed by the Jews at this time, and with good reason, because the prophets talked about this a fair amount. It was believed that when the Messiah came, that he was going to usher in this brand new day, the last days. And one of the signs of that is that the Messiah was going to bring this special outpouring of the Holy Spirit on people's lives, on like the whole nation of Israel. And so what Peter says is he goes, hey, you guys know what happened. You think it was a coincidence that eight weeks ago, Jesus of Nazareth rode into this town being proclaimed as the Messiah. You think it's a coincidence that seven weeks ago, they crucified him with King of the Jews written above the cross. You think it's a coincidence that the Messiah was supposed to bring this outpouring. You think it's a coincidence that there have been whispers ever since that time that that Jesus guy didn't stay dead. And now, look what's happening. Connect the dots. Figure it out. This is a result of the Messiah's work, and his name is Jesus. There's a third thing that Peter says this is, and and this is where I want us to focus on for the rest of this morning. He says this, this outpouring of the Spirit, 
is available to everyone. It's available to everyone. Look again at how he starts his sermon in verse 17. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's how he starts. And we're getting ahead of ourselves. This is next week's text, but I want to show you how he finishes. In verse 39, he closes out. These are his last words. When he's asked, it says the people are cut to the heart and they go, what do we do? He says, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. And then in verse 9, he says, for this promise, that is the promise of the Holy Spirit, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. So Peter begins and ends his sermon with this idea that this is for everyone. And actually, if you look through, it's all through the middle of his sermon. Not just Peter, though. Luke, when he writes this chapter, uses this word all over and over and over again. It's pas or hapas in the Greek. And sometimes it's translated all, sometimes it's translated every, sometimes it's translated everyone, but he continues to hammer this word all throughout the chapter. I'm not sure if you notice, but you'll see it in the very first verse, chapter two, verse one. And when the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together, verses three and four, and divided tongues of fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, verses five. And six. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation, and each one was hearing them speak in his own language. Verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed. Verse 21, and it shall come to pass that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Verse 32, this Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. And verse 36, let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. That's not even all of them. Luke uses this word 16 times in this chapter, and that's not an accident. He's telling us something here. He's hinting at something that you're going to see all throughout the rest of the book, that what is going on in this location, in this place, with this people is not meant to stay here. It's going to go to everyone. And here's the really crazy thing. It's that Peter, when he says these words, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, he has no idea just how true those words are. See, when Peter stands up and he proclaims that this is for everyone and this is for all and this is for each one of you, what he actually has in mind is this is for everyone who belongs to the people of God, all of God's people, Israel, of course, the Jews. He could never have imagined, and I think Luke has to be smiling when he's writing these words because Peter would have never imagined that this Gentile man named Luke would be writing these words down one day, that this Gentile man that Peter would one day call brother would be doing this. And that is the beautiful and amazing thing about the book of Acts is that we will see through this book that Jesus does not just offer his spirit to those who belong to God, he offers that same spirit to those who do not yet belong to God. 
He offers to pour out his spirit on people who didn't even think that they could belong to God, on people that you would never dream of belonging to God. In Acts, we're going to see the spirit poured out not just on Jewish fishermen, but on Roman centurions and on Ethiopian officials, on hated Samaritans and on hate-filled Pharisees and on grizzled Philippian jailers and on pagan slave girls and the list goes on and on and on and none of these receive the spirit because they are more spiritual or because they're more extraordinary or because they're more special, all of them receive the Spirit for the exact same reason, because they have first received the unmerited grace of Jesus Christ in their lives. And it's made available to everyone. And this is the amazing thing about this story. A a very similar story unfolds about 1,400 years before the day of Pentecost. Something eerily similar to Pentecost takes place, actually. The story goes that that the people of God had been taken out of Egypt, but they had not yet uh, begun to dwell in the promised land. And so they were wandering around the wilderness together, setting up camp in various places and staying there for a time. Numbers 11 tells us that they had come to a point, Moses had come to a point where he felt like he couldn't do it anymore. For this whole time, he had been in charge of leading all the people. He was the only one who was in charge, who was able to speak to God and then come and speak the words of God to the people. He was the only one in charge of caring for all of them all of this time, and it had become too much. He was overburdened, and so he says this to God, and God says, okay, I'll take care of it. God says, here's what I want you to do. I want you to take 70 elders from the people and I want you to bring them out to me at the tent of meeting and you're going to pray and you're going to commission them. And he says, Moses, I'm gonna take some of my spirit that I've placed on you and I'm gonna put it on them. And so that's what they do. They take the 70 men out of the camp and they go out there and Moses prays and he commissions and then the spirit falls on them and then these 70 elders, they begin to prophesy like spontaneously and it only lasts for a few minutes but it's this sign that the spirit has fallen on them that they will be enabled to to work alongside of Moses. Now, here's where the story gets weird. For whatever reason, reasons we don't know or understand, there were two of those elders who didn't go out with Moses. Eldad and Medad, these two men stayed in the camp. And even though they weren't there when the commissioning was given to the rest, the same Holy Spirit fell on them in the middle of the camp. And so they began to prophesy right there in the middle of the camp, began speaking out the words of God. And and you could imagine, just like on Acts 2, just like on Pentecost, this would draw a crowd. People would start to come running to see what was going on. Everybody except for one man. One man, when all the crowds ran to Eldad and Medad, one, ran, one man took off running in the opposite direction. This young man began sprinting through the camp, trying to make his way out to the outside, trying to get to Moses to tell him the news. But, but he's not going to tell him news like, hey, this is so awesome, Moses, you've got to come see what's happening. No, 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 he's going to tell him because he knows that what's happening in the camp could be disastrous, could go south really quickly. See, the people of Israel were notoriously fickle during this stage. And they were always, if you read through this section of Scripture, they were always like this close to turning on Moses in spite of all that God had done through him, in spite of all that Moses had done to shepherd them. They were this close to rebelling. They were always wanting to find another way. In fact, in the very next chapter of Numbers, you'll see uh, Moses' own brother and sister turn on him. 
But the reason they never turn on him, at least one of the main reasons they never turn on him, is because Moses is the only one who speaks to God. He's the only one who knows God. He's the only one who can come tell us what God says and what God wants. But now, that's changed. Now you've got these two men sitting in the middle of the camp prophesying clearly with the Holy Spirit on them. And of course, it's one thing when it happens with these 70 over here because Moses is there with them and he's clearly kind of in control of this and clearly kind of has authority over this. But these two guys, they're speaking and prophesying without Moses anywhere present. And this young man knows how quickly this could go bad. How quickly it could be that people go, what do we need Moses for? We got, we got Eldad and Medad. We have these guys. And so he sprints out to the edge of the camp, gets outside, and he finds Moses, and he runs up to him. And Moses is standing there with his right-hand man, Joshua. And I imagine he's doubled over trying to catch his breath. And he says, Moses, Moses, you, you, you got to come quickly. Something crazy is going on inside the camp. It's Eldad and Medad, they've, they've just started prophesying. They're speaking out the words of God and people are gathering around. And, and as soon as Joshua hears this, his eyes grow wide and he turns to Moses and he goes, Moses, you gotta, we gotta do something here. You gotta stop this. We, we gotta put an end to this. And Moses looks at the young man and he looks at Joshua. And, and the text doesn't say this, but I like to picture this in my mind that a smile comes across his face. He turns to Joshua and he says, seriously? Actually, what he says is, are you jealous for my sake? And then he looks out over the camp and he says to Joshua, I wish every last one of them were prophets. Oh, that the Spirit of God would fall on every one of God's people. You see, Joshua had no idea the burden it was to be the only man who spoke to God as a man speaks with a friend. To be the only man who knew what God was like. To be the only man who was able to come and explain to the people what God wanted, what he was like, what he was asking them to do. Moses knew that burden and it was a weight that was difficult to carry and he dreamed of this day when everyone would have the spirit. But the truth is it, it didn't work that way. Now for most of history... There was only this very small number of people who had ever experienced what it was like to have the Spirit of God. And it was only for short little bursts at a time. You had the prophets, you had a few of the kings, you had the judges, but, but not much. But the prophets looked forward to this day, as Joel would say it, when the power of God would come out through the Spirit on all of God's people. Or when, as Ezekiel said, that the Spirit of God wouldn't just come on them, he would come into them, giving them a brand new heart, replacing their stony, rebellious one, and giving them a heart of flesh that is ready and able and desiring to obey God for the first time. Or when, as Jeremiah said, you would no longer need Moses or another prophet or another priest to tell you this is what God's like because everyone would know God and everyone would know what he wants because he would be living inside of them. And the message of Acts 2 and of the rest of the New Testament is that you and I live in that day. And now we come to that last question. What does this mean for us today? Simply, it means this, that God's presence, leading, and power are available to the church through his Holy Spirit. 
Let me say that again. God's presence, leading, and power are available to the church and every member of his church, that would be you, through his Holy Spirit. This is true for anyone who is a follower of Jesus. Romans 8, 9 makes this clear. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not have the Holy Spirit. This is true for you. If you are a follower of Jesus, but here's kind of the crazy thing. I believe that, that this whole idea of having the Holy Spirit is not something static. It's not something that just, hey, now you got him. I, I believe when you read through the book of Acts and when you look at the New Testament and when you study church history, I believe this, that you can have more of him. That you ought to have more of him. Actually, that's, that's probably not the best way to say that. The Holy Spirit's not something that you can compartmentalize where, you know, you have three pieces of the Holy Spirit and I have two and she has five. No, the Holy Spirit is a person. So you can't have like more or less of him. What you can have is more from him. You can have greater experience of him. You can have more of God's presence and power and leading in your life. See, there are a lot of people who will tell you and who believe, and I was one of them for a while, that Acts 2, the day of Pentecost, was a one-time event. That that was just something that God did that one time. It was kind of a special, unique occasion because, because, you know, that's the birth of the church right there. That's the start. I don't think it is. Now, hear me. The specifics of that event, the violent rushing wind, the, the, the tongues of fire and, and maybe even the speaking in these other languages. Yeah, those may be one-time events, but the power and the new life, the filling of the Spirit and the boldness that results from it, that's not, that's not a one-time thing. That's something that we see take place repeatedly in the book of Acts. In fact, this same group of believers will experience a filling from the Spirit just two chapters later all over again. They'll get more of him. And he'll fill them with boldness again to go out and preach and to proclaim and to testify. Not only do I believe we can expect that we can get more of the Spirit or more from him, I believe we're commanded to do so. Ephesians 5.18, do not get drunk on wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul commands this. Be filled with the Holy Spirit, which... It's kind of an assumption that, that there's more that we ought to be seeking, more that we ought to have. So why? Why should we want more of the Holy Spirit? Why does the Holy Spirit come? Why does the Spirit fill people and fill his church? Is it so that they can have like a more profound worship experience? So that they can feel closer to God? Is it so that they can become a more spiritual person? Well, I, I think those things happen. I think that can happen from it. But when we look through the book of Acts, the reason the Spirit comes on his people and fills them up is to sustain and empower the church as we follow Jesus and fulfill his mission. That's why the Spirit comes, to propel us out into mission. See, I actually misled you earlier when I told you that Acts 2 was the point at which Jesus hands off the baton of ministry to his church. That's not really true. In reality, Acts 2 is telling us that Jesus never really hands off the baton of ministry. That his mission 
always rests in his powerful and capable hands, that he continues his work through his people now by the power of his Holy Spirit. And the truth is that is actually the only way we will ever be able to do the work of Jesus is by the power of his spirit. Listen, we could fill this building to the brim every Sunday. We could add a whole other wing and fill it full of kids. We could, we could bring people in here and fill all of your heads full of Bible knowledge so that you know every page of this thing. We could teach you all kinds of life skills on how to be a better parent or how to be a better spouse or how to be a better neighbor, but the real work of making actual disciples who will obey Jesus with their entire lives, whose hearts are transformed so that they are willing to die to themselves because they treasure Jesus above all things, we can't do that. Only the Spirit of God can do that in somebody's life. And so we are dependent on him to work through us in order to fulfill the Great Commission. Even you personally, listen, you may be able to try really hard. You might be able to grit your teeth and clench your fists. You might be able to become a better disciplined person so you can try to obey all the rules in this book. You might be able to become more self-fulfilled or more purpose-driven. But the real work of being remade into the image of Jesus Christ is something that is beyond your control that only happens when the Holy Spirit is at work in a human being. And that will only take place as we become a person who is increasingly in tuned to the Spirit, as our minds and our hearts are seeking Him, as we are allowing Him to fill us so that we can be bearing fruit in good works and in ministry. So the question for us is this, are we seeking that? Are we chasing him? Do we desire for the Holy Spirit to have more and more of our lives so that we might experience more and more from him? I'll confess to you that I have felt a bit of a weight this week in trying to prepare this message. This weight because I, I don't want to foster in us a desire or an expectation from the Holy Spirit that the Bible doesn't give us. And I think there are a number of people who do that. There are a number of people who say, yes, every, every one of us ought to be filled with the Spirit. And if you're filled with the Spirit, it's going to mean that you speak in tongues. And if you're filled with the Spirit, it means that you'll never experience moments of dryness in your life, that you'll always feel close to, to God. And if you're filled with the Spirit, then we'll all have a word from the Lord every day and we'll all be prophesying. No, Paul makes clear in the book of 1 Corinthians that our giftedness is different and our levels of giftedness are different. He says, not everyone speaks in tongues. Not everyone is going to prophesy. And if you read through the New Testament, it's clear that Paul and the rest of the apostles are not always on some constant spiritual high. That they still experience times of difficulty and distance and dryness. So I don't want to give us an expectation that the New Testament does not give us. But, but on the other side, I recognize this, that I think I have been guilty of going the opposite way. And that is that I have expected far less from the Holy Spirit than what the Bible tells me to. And therefore, I have desired far less from the Holy Spirit than what the Bible tells me to. And I don't want to do that anymore. And as I read through the scriptures, I cannot get around the fact that while there may still be periods of dryness, that I ought to experience a greater level of joy and vitality when the Spirit is at work in my life. 
that there ought to be increasing levels of holiness as I become more like Jesus, that there ought to be power at work in me for ministry that goes beyond the human capacity to explain or understand, that, that the Holy Spirit still does supernatural, miraculous things. As I look through the New Testament and as I look through church history, I see that the Holy Spirit sp still brings revival and does amazing things through churches and in towns and in cities and in countries. I believe that that can happen, and I no longer want to operate by my human man-made power. I want for myself, and I want for us as a church to be a people that live by that power, the power of Christ's Spirit at work in us. So then what do we do? That's sort of a tricky question, and it's for two reasons. One is that I'm short on time, but we'll have a chance to talk a little bit more about this at our Wednesday night study for those of you who come. The bigger issue that this is kind of tricky is, is that the Holy Spirit is God, which means I can't manipulate him or control him. There's not like three magical steps to unlock the Spirit's power in your life. That's not how this works. He's God. Even that command, be filled with the Spirit, it's a passive imperative. So it's like, hey, go ahead and do this, but it's like you can't really do this. Be filled. Let something happen to you. It's kind of like the illustration that often gets used. It's, it's like sitting in a sailboat, and I have no control over when the wind blows or how strong it blows or which direction it blows, but I do have control over that sail. And I want to do everything in my power to make my boat ready for the moment when the, when the wind blows. And that's what I want with the Spirit. And so let me quickly give you three things that I believe may help us in this endeavor. The first is this, let the Word shape your desires. Read what the Bible says about the Holy Spirit. What, what, is this, what does the Bible say that the Spirit does in our lives? And then, and then ask, am I expecting that? Am I desiring that? Or am I expecting way less than that? Or, or maybe expecting way more than that? Let the Spirit grow proper and right desires for you by reading the Word. Second is this, take a posture of humble, willing obedience. We see this, when the Spirit comes, he comes to propel his people out into mission. And so if you have nothing in your life that says you're ready and willing to obey God no matter what he might call you to, if you're not living in a way, like if you've got a, a neighbor that needs to hear the gospel but you have no intentions of ever trying to share the gospel with him, don't expect the Spirit to give you boldness towards that. If you've got a spouse that you need to love in a way that builds them up into the Lord, but they've wronged you and you're kind of bitter towards them and you don't want to forgive them, don't expect the Spirit to empower you in that task. You don't need the Spirit to sit at home and watch Netflix. So have a heart and mind and a life that says, however difficult it may be, however stretching it may be, whatever level of discomfort you may call me to, I want to obey, but I'm gonna need you to show up, Spirit. And number three is simply this ask. This is another thing we see often when the Spirit comes on the believers in the book of Acts, it's when they're gathered together in a time of prayer. In Luke 11, verses nine through 13, Jesus says, ask, and you will find, seek, or ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. And he goes in and he says, you know, those of you who are fathers, if your 
if your kid asks for an egg, which one of you would give him like a scorpion? Or if he asks for a fish, which one of you would give him a serpent? No, none of you would do that. You love to give good gifts to your, to your kids. How much more, and this is amazing, Luke, uh, Luke 9, 13, how much more do you think your heavenly father wants to give the Holy Spirit to those who ask of him? So ask, yes, he's God and we cannot control or manipulate him, but he's also your father. And you think he doesn't wanna give more of himself, more of his presence, more of his power to his children? God's presence, leading, and power are available to the church through his spirit. So let's seek that, let's wait for that, let's desire that church so that we can live from that. And so I can't really think of any better way to, to end this than in a time of prayer. We, we spend a couple, a uh, little bit of time each week in corporate prayer together, and that's what our corporate prayer is going to be for this morning, for the spirit to work in us. I, I want to, before we do that, dismiss the servers to make their way to the back so that you can go and grab the elements we'll share in a time of communion. But for the rest of us, I wanna give you a moment to ask yourself this question. Am I even seeking what the Spirit has for me? Am, am I trying to live by the Spirit's power or by my own? Am I experiencing all that the, the Bible says I ought to? And then we'll spend some time asking for it. So take a moment to reflect and then we'll pray. Lord, even in this task of preaching about your Holy Spirit, I am inadequate, and unless your Spirit comes to make these words come alive, and do something in our hearts, then we wasted our time. We confess our need for you to understand your word and to love you and, and to even want you more. We confess that we have not often sought to live by your spirit. We so often live by our own power because we wanna be comfortable or we wanna be safe or because we don't even know what it looks like. But God, I pray that you would do something new in us. I pray for a fresh filling of your spirit in our lives as a church, as a people. God, I ask for you by your spirit's power to bring revival into this church and into this city not so that we can have fresh, new, brand new experiences, but so that we can obey you as we ought, so that your name might be glorified, we might be satisfied in you. Please send your Holy Spirit on us that we may live in him and walk in him. I ask you that in the name of Jesus, amen. I wanna invite the servers to come down and begin serving the elements, and as they do that, I wanna draw your attention to something here in the room. I don't know how often you look up when you walk in here. I don't often, but last week I, I walked up to notice, I don't know if you ever noticed, there's tongues of fire over your head. Not real ones, glass ones, of course. But the presence that they represent is just as real in here today as it was 
on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2. The Spirit of God still dwells in and among his people just like it did on that day. And the reason why the Spirit of God can dwell in us and among us is told to us in John chapter 7. Jesus says these words, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scriptures have said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. And then John explains what he means by that. He says, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. That word glorified, that's John's catchword for crucified, buried, and resurrected. And so what John says is, the Spirit that is there to satisfy, it had not yet come on people like you and I. It had come in like moments and in glimpses, temporarily into people's lives, but it could never come into anybody's heart and set up residence there because everybody's heart was too sinful. No one was a proper dwelling place for the Spirit of God. And then Jesus came. And then Jesus died in your place for your sins and then Jesus rose from the grave and sent his Holy Spirit pouring it out on all flesh on all humanity so that now you and I get the ability to look around the room at our brothers and sisters and say God is there and God is there and and God is there setting up his dwelling among his people because Jesus has made us the kind of people that the Spirit of God can dwell in now So we celebrate that together every Sunday when we come to take communion. And I'm going to do that with you too. Thank you. Through bread and through cup. So brothers and sisters, this is Christ's body broken for you. Let's take it together.